you've got a text nearby, a passage, you get up, get out your smartphone, your tablet. There's some that are also under the bottom of the seats. We'd love for you to be able to look at the passage today, Romans chapter 2. I believe the Lord must want to do a great and wonderful thing today. We knew that we would have several people that are out today, and a couple of our staff members are out as well. We've got 28 that are uh, 28 of our young adults that are on retreat until this afternoon as well. So I appreciate you being here today. And plus, uh, uh, Aaron's uh, backup has sick children at home, so our backup wasn't able to be here. So we appreciate Miss Polly, who's no backup uh, to anybody, but appreciate her leading today. Thank you so much. Max would be proud. Appreciate you leading in worship. But knowing all that, we're going to have a cozy time, wonderful time together, knowing that the Lord has great things in store uh, for all those who have come to be a part today. We're continuing our series, Why Should I Believe? Looking at the first few chapters of Romans chapter 2, and this hopefully will help you to be able to stand up for Jesus, know why you believe, and also know how you might be able to tell others as well. This now is the Word of God. Would you stand and honor the reading of God's Word today? Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word, and you may be seated today. This is an important passage for us in helping us to be able to understand what should be our attitude of those of us who represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It becomes necessary as we read this passage in order for us to be able to understand it correctly, to be able to understand for whom Paul is writing to. He has a particular people in mind in which he's writing. There's a particular context in which he's writing to the church and to the people who are in Rome. Because it's good for us to be able to understand the background you understand so that we might be able to make the right application, interpretation. Because we know that we do not come here simply to go through the motions or to be able to just be able to read and then be able to go home. But we want to make application for our daily lives. We want to make a difference in who we are, if not maybe in eternity. For instance, we want to be able to understand, if we read verse 10 that we just read a moment ago, if we took it out of context and we perhaps tried to maybe even have a, uh, build our theology around this one verse, we might have a problem. For it reads like this. But... Uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 10 says, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, if we just read that verse, it sounds to me that if you're a good Jew or if you're a good Greek or if you're a good person, well, your reward is glory, honor, and peace. So let's just try to be good. 
And if we think about it, my goodness, we're pretty good. I mean, when we compare ourselves to a lot of people, are we not? But you know what the Bible tells us? As a matter of fact, that's chapter 2 and verse 10. If you look over at chapter 3 and verse 10 on the other side of the page there probably of your Bible, it reads that there is no one who is good or no one who is righteous. No, not one. We're all in need of a Savior. Those who live godly lives or reflect Christ-like character are a direct result of a relationship with Jesus Christ. When the Bible says you will be rewarded for living for Jesus, you need to know that salvation and that Jesus is the reward. It is salvation is already given to you. Reminded us that we are serving from salvation, not for salvation. Because we know Jesus and have eternal life, that's the reason that we want to serve Him. That's the reason we want to live for Him and serve others. It would help you to know Paul's target audience in this chapter. For you see, Paul's writing to people who are like him. He's writing to Jewish people who need to know the truth about Jesus. We read verse 1 of chapter 2. You have no excuse. He's writing to his fellow Jews. If there's any uh, doubt or any question as to who he's writing to, if you look ahead to verse 17 of chapter 2 where it says there, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, meaning the Jewish people, those who refused to believe in Jesus, who tried to follow the Old Testament, not to mention many man-made laws that they made up and thought that they were good or righteous or good enough, what was the problem? Well, nobody's ever followed the law perfectly except for Jesus. So they were not righteous. They were not good by the standard of the law and certainly not good compared to Jesus. And they boasted in God, that verse says, meaning that as long as they were sons and daughters of Abraham, they were God's people. They had a false sense of spiritual security and then so they judged the pagans. They judged the Gentiles, everybody who was not a Jew for their sinful ways. So it helps us to understand the passage that if we know Paul's writing to convince his fellow countrymen that they have a need of Christ, and they are no better off than those whom they condemn and judge. Now in Romans chapter 1, we talked more about that in the last couple of weeks. As a matter of fact, Paul's writing particularly to those who are the pagans, those who are non-Jews. <clears throat> And he says that they are without excuse because through creation and through nature they are made aware of God and had are held responsible for their own sins. Knowing there is a God through creation cannot save, but it can give a person to desire and want to have a relationship with God, which as we discovered and talked about last week and through chapter 1, is only available through the Son, Jesus Christ. Then Paul writes to the Jews in chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse because you know about God. You've been told about a coming Savior. You know the law of God. And Paul writes, the law of God is like a school teacher pointing in the right direction, but the law cannot save anyone. The understanding is that Paul's writing to the, those who are the Jewish people who have even less excuse than the pagans do of not turning to Jesus. Now we read through verses 1 through 11. I want you to notice verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, don't judge others when you've committed the same sins and you know of God and you have the law of God in your hand. Now what sins particularly is he talking about? Well, he talked about some of those in chapter 1. He talks of the shameless, unnatural acts of men and women. 
Then if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 29, he says this. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. It is as if Paul is saying to his fellow countrymen who have not received Christ, he says, you want to judge others. You think that you're blameless, but you're not. But it's not just to condemn them, or perhaps to do as some red-faced preachers do who seem to be mad at the world and simply to tell you a lot of things that might make you feel guilty and then you're not sure what to do with all the guilt. Instead, Paul wants to convince everyone, you're not righteous, you need Jesus. Stop trying to do things your own way, under your own strength. I hope to get to heaven by good works. You need Jesus. Now, using a lot of verses and a lot of words, that's pretty much the summary of this passage. And we could stop right there and feel like, okay, we've got the summary of this passage done. But we're not going to stop. You want to make some application for your life today and to seek to be an influence on others. What is it that we can learn from those whom, according to Paul, had a superior self-righteous attitude, blind to their own needs, but quick to judge others? Well, don't be like that. That's certainly a good lesson, but we want to be a little more specific and practical. Attitude is important because it, it, it determines what is truly on the inside, and it's, it is what comes out. Attitude also will determine your actions. What will help us to have the best actions and the proper attitude, particularly when it comes to others. Well, for illustration purposes only, and at the risk of political upheaval, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel about the wall along our southern border of the United States? Your attitude about that probably depends on if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you like the president or you don't like the president, how you feel about illegal immigration, what news channel you watch, if any, as well as a host of other factors. I could care less reflects an attitude. Now, five years ago, if I had asked that question here from this pulpit, probably you had a different attitude at that time. Five or ten years from now, it may be even different. But what we want to do, using that just as an example, what we want to do is to have a proper Christ-like attitude toward all things but particularly toward all people. What will help us from this passage to be more consistent in the growing Christ? We might remember the passage about Jesus from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 that says this, have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Or it may be how you learned it, have the mind of Christ. And that's our goal today. We want to have the same attitude. We want to have the mind of Christ. So speaking of walls, how is your attitude outside the walls of this church, outside the walls of the church. In other words, what's our attitude toward people outside the church? Walls. And I don't mean just these walls that we're sitting in now because we continue to be the church even when we, even during the week. But I mean to those who are not part of the body of Christ, those who are lost, those who need Jesus. What is your what is your attitude toward those people and what will be our attitude toward those who are not part of the family of God? Now, the passage that we read today clearly tells us not to judge, not to pass judgment. 
Jesus told many parables about this very subject, so it must have been important to him. But one that he told particularly was about a Pharisee and a publican who went to the temple to pray. Publican, the, who was a tax collector, he fell to his knees and asked for God's mercy. And the Pharisee stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this sinner. Then Jesus tells us the tax collector went away justified. The Pharisee did not. The Pharisee was blind to his own sins and need for repentance. There's a name for this that we can sometimes be guilty of. And if you've got your notes there, it might help you to be able to follow along in this. And that is the word deflection. It is deflection. Sometimes it's what we do, a definition to put the focus on one subject or person in order to take the focus off of self. How much easier it is to see the sins of others and miss the sins, the attitudes, and the actions that you may need to address, correct, or confess in your own life. We would rather judge other people than to deal with our own sins. And again, Jesus said using hyperbole, meaning exaggeration to make a point. How can you see a splinter in someone else's eye and not be able to see the plank in your own eye? First remove that plank out of your own eye, then you might be able to help a brother or someone who is in need. Of course, we should not expect those outside the church necessarily to live a godly life, but we should set the example. But how important it is for us as believers to daily deal with our own sins, confess our own sins, and daily work on our own fellowship with Jesus as we grow in Christ. Now, there's another part of that definition of that word for deflection. We said to put the focus on one subject or person in order to take the focus off of self or to shift the focus where it needs to be. So I'm using the same word with a couple of different kinds of definition here because I believe that Paul was using here a kind of deflection to talk to his fellow countrymen about their need for Jesus. Most of chapter 1, you might notice, uses the pronoun they. Paul begins to talk to them and he says they are without excuse in chapter 1. They are deserving of God's wrath. They have committed all these sins. Last verse in chapter 1, Romans 1.32 says this, Though they knew, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And Paul is proving a truth. He's talking about they, particularly those who are non-Jews, those who are of the pagans. And he's also using deflection to make a point. Because he has his readers, many of them Jewish, right where he wants them. Because as Paul is talking about all of these, he's using the word they, they're saying, you tell them, Paul. You show them. You talk about all their sins. Preach it to them, brother. Give it to the pagans. But then in Romans chapter 2, you might notice, for those of you that know about English, and now it's no longer they, but it is you. You have no excuse. You who judge. You who condemn. You who need Jesus. Deflection, it's an intention getter. Oh, I need this. I need to make some changes. I didn't know that you were talking about me. Now this kind of deflection was often used in the Old Testament by the prophets. If you go back through, you'll read some of the prophets who often condemned and talked about the surrounding nations of Israel. This nation's doing that, and this nation's doing that. This nation deserves judgment. That one's being condemned. And they were right because they were sinful nations. 
But then the prophets would have the Israelites right where he wanted them to be. And then he'd say, you, O Israel, you are committing the same sins and you need to change. The probably most famous deflection story in the Old Testament is that of King David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband killed on the front lines in battle, then married the widow Bathsheba, thinking no one would be the wiser even though she was pregnant with David's illegitimate child. Nathan the prophet comes to David to tell him the story of two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing but a little ewe lamb he loved and he treated it like a child. A traveler came to stay with the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking uh, any animal from his cattle or from his sheep to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the one ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for his guests to eat. David was outraged. He declared that this man must die, give back to the poor man four times over what he's taken. And then you know what Nathan said and declared to the king. You are the man. So gentlemen, next time somebody tells you that you are the man, you might want to think of King David. He said, you've sinned. But David, confronted with sin, immediately humbly repented before God and asked for God's mercy. In fact, Psalm 51 is his song of confessional. Some of those verses that we have from Psalm 51, beginning with verse 1, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a what? A right spirit within me. In other words, a right spirit speaks of attitude. And Nathan uses deflection to put the focus where it needed to be. In fact, it could be happening right now. Because we've read a little bit in Romans chapter 1 where Paul talked to the pagans and says, those pagans, they're sinners, they're responsible for their own sins. Paul talks to the Jewish people and he says to them, says to those Jewish people who had not received Jesus, you're also sinners and you also need Jesus. Well, as we're listening... We might say, preach it, Paul. Tell them like it is. Boy, they sure need to hear it. But can I ask you this morning, does the Lord have your attention? Because what does this passage say to you? Church today, those of you who are part of the body of Christ, you have Jesus. You know the truth. You have the whole gospel. But do you need to confess sin? Are you growing in your relationship with Jesus? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, you have no excuse. In the ESV, it says, oh man. Some translations just say you, and it's emphatic. When I say old man, if you're not looking at that, it doesn't say old man. That might would be me. But oh man, as if to say you are the ones. I could put my name there. Therefore, you have no excuse, Jeff Redmond, you who judge others, unless you're dealing with your own sins, your attitude toward those in the community will not Need be, will not be what it needs to be. Do you need to put your name in verse 1? Well, there's another word that we want to use and got a definition for. It's the word projection. Projection is to criticize in others those negative traits in which you yourselves are really guilty. Now, this is a clinical term used in psychology today of people who often reflect their own sins or judge others for the very sins in which they are guilty of or they are most tempted 
It's a psychological term that is used today, but Paul must have been aware of it because he said there to his fellow Jews, he says, you're judging others and practicing the very same things. Now search your hearts. Are the sins of others that bother you the most? Are they the very sins to which you are most tempted? Paul may have been declaring a very general sense here saying, they are sinners, you are sinners. How about us, those of us who belong to the body of Christ? We're sinners, but we're sinners who are saved by God's grace. A couple of other terms, words that you're familiar with, but maybe to be reminded, maybe to help with our attitude toward the community and those who need Christ, one of those words is rejection. Rejection is the result of the reward based on your works, but revealed to you through God's creation and laws of the Old Testament. It is True, and we know the Bible teaches without Christ, even good works will not be enough to get anyone to heaven or to have eternal life. All are in need of a Savior. Whether it's being revealed to you through creation or through the law of the Old Testament, both reveal sin and this truth, Paul tells us. And all of us know people in the community who are good people. They're good to others. They're great neighbors. They, are, they care for the city that we live in. Many of them do community work more than the church. They don't seem to fit this profile necessarily of the sins listed in the first two chapters of Romans. But we understand if they do not turn to Christ, they will be lost, rejected for salvation, not because God does not love them, but because God is a holy God who cannot overlook or disregard sin. Well, maybe we're asking, now why doesn't God do something drastic so that even those who are basically good people might be able to go to heaven, be able to have Jesus? Well, He did do something drastic. The Son of God came to earth. He was rejected on our behalf so all could come to Him. But repentance and faith are necessary. And then surely the other word, you are aware of, and that's the word salvation. It is the result of the reward based on God's grace through faith for all who believe. Many places in the Bible we're told not to judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. But do you know that there are some places in the Bible where we're told to judge? Judge this for yourself. And the same word is used. One is good and the other is not. Now, we're to evaluate sometimes maybe those inside the church differently than we are outside the church, but that's not necessarily consistent. Even here, Paul is judging in a sense who needs to hear this truth, but he's doing that under the direction of the Holy Spirit in order to point people to Jesus. So when is it okay to judge and when are we not to judge? Well, sometimes we like to use the word evaluate, and that might help us out a little bit. Sometimes we use Fruit inspection, or people, others growing fruit, or we growing fruit in our lives to distinguish the difference. That may be fine, but using a different word does not necessarily change the intent, usefulness, or if it's right or wrong. But the Bible uses the word judge as both good and sometimes bad actions. The difference, guess what it has to do with? It's got a difference, it has to do with your attitude. Do you have the attitude or do you have the mind of Christ in your evaluation of those outside the church, particularly as we talk about to begin with? Because we talk about our attitude, first of all, those outside the church. What might help? Let me give you something simple that might help. And you might even notice there on the front of your bulletin we have what is our vision. Our vision, love God, love Auburn, and love the nations. We know the greatest commandment 
that is given, that we shall love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we love God, we hopefully that will spill over, or if we truly love God, that will spill over into how we feel about others. The second it's likened to it, love thy neighbor as thyself. We want you to love Auburn. I want you to understand that doesn't necessarily mean the orange and blue in Auburn University. But we want to love the community in which we're in, the place where the Lord has planted us for however long He's planted us here. Let's love those people who are around us. And we want to love the nations. We want our love to spread so much that we care not just about the people that we see every day, but people that we've never seen and never met around the world. And we want to be involved in loving all people. We have people who are going spring break across this nation to Phoenix. We have people who are going across this world to Africa during spring break to be able to share the good news of the gospel. We even have at the same time people who will be in this community as we'll be doing a Bible club up the street with a focus on one of our uh, housing projects and the kids there so that they might be able to hear the good news as well. We hope that it's a great picture of the kinds of things that happens when we're truly loving all people everywhere in the church. Speaking of walls... How's your attitude inside the walls of the church? Even though Paul's addressing those who were judging people not like themselves, how we treat one another or those who visit or test the waters of the church may be our greatest testimony. As far as getting people, I mean even to come to worship and to be able to be involved in our fellowship and maybe even for the first time in our church, maybe that will be shown in how we treat people outside the church. But in order to get them to come for the second time or to be able to come and be assimilated into the church, be have an opportunity so that we might be able to engage them in a relationship with Jesus or help in their journey may have something to do with our attitude toward those inside the church. New Testament says much about attitude and actions of believers in the body of Christ. Even more so, the Bible, New Testament tells us about how we treat one another even more so than it does about those who are outside the church. Now I'm going to borrow, you've got five things there that you could list, but I'm going to borrow these from this past week's Alabama Baptist. came out on February 14th, so I guess it was about uh, loving others, but had a little article in there about five ways we can be more loving. Just list those for you. Encourage others. Encourage others. The world can be a, a difficult, sometimes depressing place, and life is sometimes unfair. But all oh, when they come to be a part of the body of Christ. What would happen if every church member sought to encourage and lift up one another in your Sunday school or in our worship services and our fellowship times together? Sometimes I'll have Sunday school teachers ask me, what, do, what, what am I to do about our chronic absentees? You know, the people that are on our roll that we don't ever see. I say, well, have you invited them? They said, oh yeah, we invite them all the time. So I say, stop inviting them to church. They say, they say what? Preacher says, stop inviting them to church. They know you want to come, but instead, just let them know, just love on them. Let them know that you care about them. Look for opportunities. Pray for them. Look for opportunities to be able to minister to them and see what will happen. We'll be encouraging to one another. Number two, appreciate people. Be sincere in letting people know what you appreciate about them. We all have different gifts and talents, and ask the Lord to help you see the good in everyone. As believers, we have a common bond in Jesus. We all have the Holy Spirit living inside each one of us, so we ought to be able to appreciate the fact that we can see Jesus in each one and that we have this common bond. Number three, love unconditionally. Love does not critically judge. How do we grow deep and wide? <laughs> it's 
learning how to love each other. Today, if you have something against a brother or sister in Christ, settle it first in your own heart. And then if needed, go and ask for forgiveness and forgive just as you have been forgiven in Christ. As far as it depends on you, be at a loving peace with one another. Are you loving unconditionally? Here's a good test. Is there anybody that you avoid at church? If that's true, then there may be a problem with loving unconditionally. Or how about this? When you hear the phrase loving unconditionally, do you really think about those people that you already love and you think, I'm going to go ahead and love them unconditionally and not necessarily about others? That's not loving unconditionally. You understand we don't love all people all the time. I want to tell you, this kind of evaluating, it's so important if we're going to move forward in Christ and for the Lord to continue to help us to grow deep and wide and for the potential that He has for us. I've used the word potential in a long time. Number four, build others up. Build others up. Not critical, not condemning. Empathize with others. Put yourself in his or her place. We're a church family. Is your family perfect? Nor are we. And we have many rough edges, but we can be at work to help each other become all God would have us to be. And we need to always be thinking, how can we build one another up? Don't be like the parishioner. One member came to another member and said, you know, I felt like I've just been needed to tell you that I've never really liked you. And you think the next thing would be, but now I love you, or please forgive me for that. But no, it wasn't that short conversation. It ended with, oh, I'm so glad that I got that off my chest. One went away feeling much better, and the other went away feeling lousy, when actually it probably should have been the opposite. Number five, treat people like you want to be treated. On the last one, I did write in my notes, we need to think, people, before we speak. Think, so that we might be building up in edifying. Number five, treat people like you want to be treated. Follow the golden rule, and you will not go wrong. Look for those that are left out. Look for those who are in need. Look for new guests. By the way, if you're here for the first or second time, or only been here a few times, and you think you stick out and think everybody else knows everybody else, you're not the only one. We're welcoming new people all the time. In fact, we got 28 young adults who are on a retreat this week. And looking at the list of 28, two of those couples, there's 14 couples, two of those have been here five years or more, which means the rest of those have all come in the last five. Let's just, if, you, if you've been, a, whether you've joined or not, if you've been a part of Parkway just in the last five years, would you raise your hand for just a moment? We'll look around. And this is the first service. Okay? Just look around. So you're not. So we, we want to we be able to build one another up. We want to treat people like we want to be treated no matter who you are. You're not the only one. We'll be a testimony to the community. And people will hear and want to be a part. We'll always have room for more. Romans chapter 2. Look down at verse 24 if you would where it says... For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's speaking to the Jewish people, God's people. God's name is being blasphemed because of you. While it's still true, many people tell us the reason they're not part of the church or a church is because there's just too many hypocrites they believe in church. May it never be said about this church that the name of Jesus is being blasphemed outside these walls or because of what happens inside these walls. By the way, just a side issue, here's a good definition of a hypocrite. That's the person who claims there's, or complains, excuse me, the person who complains that there's too much sex 
in violence on their own demand and recorded TV shows. Just let you think about that for a minute. Remember, so what can we do? Help us and say, let's remember our mission. Also there, mentioned on the front side of your bulletin, we need to remember our mission to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. For no matter where you are in your journey, we want to help you in your walk, whether you're a new believer, been a Christian for a long time, whether you're still thinking about becoming a believer, we want to help you to be able to take the next step or anywhere in between. We want to help you to be able to have that journey and that walk with Christ. My attitude, your attitude, your spirit and mine need to be like Christ. We want to recognize there are some here today that have not begun their journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we've talked maybe particularly to believers today, to those who are believers, we want to be able to recognize that as you're listening in about what Paul writes in as we're making application today, we want you to be able to see that there's no greater journey than there is to be a part of the journey that includes Jesus as your Savior and Lord for the walk today as well as for your journey for eternity. In just a few moments, you'll have opportunity, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, to give your heart and life to Jesus. Don't let this opportunity pass by. But speaking of walls, how's your attitude inside the walls of your heart? Verse 11, if God shows no partiality, guess what? Then neither should you. All of us need to be changing and growing. Changing begins within. The attitude of the heart will determine who you really are in Christ and what you do or what you will do. And change does not happen automatically. You have to allow Jesus to go to work on you. You must realize that you need to change. You need to grow. How Paul must have shocked his fellow Jews when he wrote to them that God shows no partiality. What? We thought that we, surely we thought that we were special to God. Surely we, God loved us most. And it must have rocked the world, rocked their world when Paul wrote to them in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 2. And says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And then in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Meaning true change in faith is a matter of the heart, and it begins within. Giving your heart to Jesus and allowing Him to take control will change your attitude. Martin Luther, reformer of the 16th century, said, The unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. The righteous try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. Only those who place their faith in Christ are capable or even want to seek godliness. See, I want you to face each day with attitude, ready to serve God, ready to serve others. And only those with proper attitude and relationship with God can have a proper attitude and relationship with others. which leads us to the fact and to the knowledge from God's Word. True transformation begins within when you submit all to Jesus. One of our parishioners had heart surgery this past February 14th on Valentine's Day. And I saw him in recovery. He woke up just long enough to look at me and he won't remember what I said, so I'm going to tell you. I said, what a great day to have a new heart working correctly on Valentine's Day. Well, today's not Valentine's Day. But what a great day to have your heart working right 
spiritually speaking, or to renew your spirit, to have the Lord create in you a clean heart. What a great day to do that today. Do you need to give your heart and life to Jesus? We want to encourage you to do that very thing today. Or as David, do you need to ask the Lord to renew a right spirit within you? We encourage you to do that today. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for today's opportunities that we've had to be able to worship. We thank you for opportunities we have already to fellowship and Bible study, not only here but also coming and other things going on today, Father. We, we give you praise, honor, and glory. And thank you for calling us into your family and into service. We pray now, Father, that you may work from the inside out to make us the people that you need us to be. We pray, Father, that you might renew a right spirit within us so that we might have the proper attitude within the church, proper attitude outside the church, and particularly the proper attitude in our hearts. We pray, Father, for someone today who may not know you as Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that even now they may be calling upon you considering open the door of their heart so that Christ might come in. Thank you, Father, for how you continue to be at work. It's in Christ's name we lift these prayers. Amen.